long section, a lot going on there now. Uh, right after we took the break when the video was off and they were rebooting, Barb had done a quick search and found a picture depicting a literal image of the woman in the Song of Solomon. And Judy asked a very perceptive question, How, and which is one that has tripped up a lot of people, how do you determine what the point of comparison is when you're using uh, various similes and metaphors? One way is just to list the various characteristics that you can. For example, in the imagery here, you see that her... Um, her hair is like a flock of goats. It's not like an individual goat. It's the comparison is with the the whole flock, and it has, so you can think in terms of color, size, smell, uh, quality. You know, there, there's all different areas. And you say he's describing a beautiful woman. So where would the comparison be? Would it be color, or would it be movement, flowing? Uh, and that would probably be uh, the way to do that. Now, that's one way to look at uh, how you analyze things. There's a lot of different um, metaphors, similes in the, in, in the Psalms and in uh, poetry that relate to uh, animals, relate to uh, various flora. And so, uh, in fact, I have a book at home on flora and fauna in the Bible, and that was pro- came out in the in the 70s, so there's probably more updated material. There's other books on imagery in the Bible. There's a whole encyclopedia of imagery in the Bible put out by InterVarsity Press. Uh, another <clears throat> tool that probably is much larger than anything you ever imagined, but this uh, small little book here, let me... Um, Hold up something on the video for perspective. Here's a pen, so you can see this book is about two and a half, three inches thick, called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, Explained and Illustrated. And the table of contents, which lists all the different figures of speech conceivable to mankind, begins on page... You see here, figure the table of contents, a summary of class, classification begins on page uh, 19 and goes through page 66. So you have, what's that going to be? Like 47 pages of table of contents listing all the different figures of speech. Conceivable. You never learned anything. I, I mean, I never learned anything like that. And I was an English major, part of a double major. Never heard anything like this. So I'm. Con- <clears throat> so that's one thing. Other things. There are books like this. Again, this book. Not sure when this came out. 1983, called How to Use New Testament Greek Study Aids. And there are several different types of books like this that list different study aids and just give you an idea of the different kind of tools that are out there and summarizes them. And then you have other books like this one, uh, which was put out by Walk Through the Bible Ministries called Talk Through the Bible, which is a new survey of the setting and content of Scripture. And it lists every book of the Bible, it's a lot like a Bible handbook, 
and it gives you an introduction and a chart of the organization and structure of the book, and then it will give you inform- basic information about introduction, title, author, date, setting, time, I mean the theme and purpose, and a little survey and overview of, of each book of the Bible. But those kinds of things are very helpful. You have them. There's there there's a lot of them. That's that's one that's that's fairly good. Okay. Now let's go back to our passage in uh, Mark. If I can see if I can grab this, make it a little larger. Okay, we're looking at Mark. Chapter 11, starting in verse uh, 20, 27. Now, I want some of you all to tell me, what are some of the things that you noticed, some of the things you observed about the overall structure? Because this is a, a long section that has uh, 51 verses. So what did you notice about structure? Anything? have to pin down the pronouns. Excellent observation. Yeah. You really have to pay attention to your pronouns and pay atten- and define who who those pronouns are. Who are the they's? Who the he's? Who the the them? Uh, who's talking to whom? Okay. What else did you notice? Everybody, all the religious groups are represented. Very good observation. All the religious groups are mentioned. Uh, you have the, and what are those? Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, Scribes. What else did you note? A lot of uh, back and forth, right? And okay, you got a lot of dialogue. But but our Lord... you got a lot of challenging... Right, but He doesn't address them directly, right? So there, yeah. you know, there's this kind of... Um, Dodging, if you will, right? And you the know the question. answer to this. Why are you asking me this question? Yeah, he, he doesn't, and, and which is another good observation. He doesn't always validate their question by answering their question. Just because, and what what's the application? That's right. Doesn't verify the presuppositions. Very good, very good. That just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you need to answer it. We all feel compelled. Somebody, especially somebody who is. Uh, opposed or critical of Christianity ask a question that we should answer it. And what we learn is that that's not what Jesus did. But, but we see dialogue and, and what, what's the atmosphere? What's the mood here? What's the, what's the tone? What do we see? Hostility, hostility and confrontation. Okay, Jeff? Well, it, there is hostility, but it's interesting that, you know, here are the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The experts. But when our Lord says, answer me, they all run around and go, oh, but we need to think about what this guy's saying. Yeah. Right? Right. You know, usually if you go up to an expert and say, hey, answer me, he's like, hey, get out of here. So, you know, he has, they know something's going on there. Yeah. Right? On top of that, the very thing that they're supposed to be experts in, he tells them from the scriptures. Right. He, he challenges them from this. He's always going back to the scripture. He's always challenging them from the scripture, which always points us to scriptural authority. Now, let Franklin. With his answers, he would show the flaws in their own thinking. 
by answering them back, he would, so they couldn't answer because he would expose to them that their own thinking was flawed. Yeah, he, his answers are very sophisticated and, and they're fairly simple. I, I don't see anywhere where he didn't quite quote unquote answer their questions, he just didn't answer it necessarily in a direct answer. He did, well, right. Well, sometimes he, uh, the first one he doesn't answer. Uses the answer to the first one. No, not to, not to the first one because because what you, you you have here, you've got a series of interchanges with different people. Okay, you got close to that in your observation. He deals with every religious group, but is there a structure to that? And we'll come back to that question in a minute because so far, one of the most important rules for observation hasn't surfaced yet. Okay, the verse, be- the, the section begins, then they came again to Jerusalem. Yeah, but there's something even more basic. What, what, what did, how many, pe- how many people went back to the verses before? How many of you went back and read verses uh, 1 through 26 in chapter 11? I didn't have time. I was just trying to get through the side reading. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important in almost every situation is you just start off in this verse, then they came again to Jerusalem. What is what what do you learn just from that phrase? And what are the questions you want to ask? What were they doing the first time? When was the first time? Yeah, they came again, which means they'd been there before. So what happened the first time? Another question would be, who's they? And uh, and you have to identify that. And to identify that, you have to go back how far? See, I, I've sort of done this for you here. I started going through here using some markup. Then they came again. This is a time word indicating a second time. To Jerusalem. Now, the underline here, the double green underline indicates a place. So we want to see that. So they're coming again to Jerusalem. So that drives you back a little bit just to find the day. You come back and in the um, previous section, we, we see I and you, but we can't identify the they yet. In fact, we go back to verse 20, and what do we read? In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look. So Jesus, this is the first time we are introduced to uh, Jesus. So we have the they and Jesus. When do we find out? How far back do we have to find out? who's with him. Verse 11, 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's the first time we can nail down who is, who's exactly with him. So we go all the way back to, to verse 11. Now, here's another question. When... Very important. When is this taking place? Didn't he always go there for the feast days? Yeah, but you, you can figure it out better than that. Paul 
That's right. This is right after the triumphal entry. So this is taking place in the last week before the crucifixion. That's really important because he, Mark and the, and, the, and the other writers aren't just giving us another example of this is how the religious leaders just can't understand what Jesus is doing. What is going to happen later that week? Crucifixion. Who gets crucified? Christ. And Christ is who? Jesus. Is Jesus. What's another term for Jesus? Another title for Jesus? He is the... What John, John the Baptist called? John the Baptist said he was the Lamb of God. What is fulfilled? What is fulfilled on the day that he's crucified? What Old Isaiah. Testament event? What typology is what typology is fulfilled on the day on, on what day on what day is Christ crucified? Passover. 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 What is fulfilled? What's the picture on what happens on Passover? The lamb is sacrificed. What are the qualifications for the lamb? In Passover, what? Yes, without spot or blemish. When is the lamb chosen? The lamb is chosen five days, four days before Pentecost. Why? For inspection. For inspection. So what's happening between 1127 and 1244? Inspection. Inspection. The religious leaders are inspecting Jesus. This is this is when they're running him through the grill. It's it's what we looked at like this morning in Matthew. We're looking at Satan taking, or, or the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out in the wilderness, and then Satan tempts him. And this is to show the initial uh, evidence of his messiahship before he begins his ministry. Well, we have another evaluation that takes place right before he goes to the cross, and that's what we see here is he, his evaluation. From the religious leaders. But they don't know they're really doing that. Right, right, they, right. They don't understand that that's what they're doing, but that, that's what they're doing. He enters in on, uh, in the triumphal entry. This is the presentation of the lamb or the selection of the lamb. Then it's followed. It all fits the typology. Then it's followed by the evaluation of the lamb and then the, uh, sacrifice of the lamb. So we have this picture that, that takes place here. Where's Jesus staying? Right, he's staying at, at Bethany, which is up on the Mount of Olives, which isn't very far from, from Jerusalem. This is about two miles, two to three miles from the, uh, from the temple. So they would spend the night there, and then they would go into Jerusalem uh, the next day. He goes into Jerusalem... See if I can find the one I did earlier. Here we go. I've been wanting to use this for a long time. First time I went to to Israel in 2006, we're on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, and there's this enormous fig tree. First thing I thought of was this passage in... in, um, in Luke or in, in Mark here, in the morning as they passed by, they saw a fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter remembered saying to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has, has withered away. So the cursing of the fig tree was back in verse 12. 
He saw a fig tree with that leaf. So I don't want to get into that. But I've been looking for that. I found the picture the other day, and I said, ah, i got to make a slide out of that. That's a great picture of a fig tree that's right there on the uh, southern steps of the, of the Temple Mount. Okay, so we go to our verse. We've looked at some background issues so far, and then we read, then they, the disciples in Jesus, came again to Jerusalem, so they've uh, been there. We have time markers. What are the time markers? There's the triumphal entry that begins in eleven uh, one. Okay. Verse 12, now the next day, so this is the, the, the first day they enter, the second day, the next day, when they'd come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And this is when he curses a fig tree in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. This is still the next day. Jesus goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers. And what happens? He gets confrontation with the scribes and the chief priests. So they decide to see how they can destroy him and uh, because they feared him. Then verse 20, now in the morning. So you ought to be under, underlining these time phrases. The, there's the first day, there's the next day, verse 12, then in the morning. So this would be the second day after the entry. Uh, it's when they, they come in, they see the, the victory. And then verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. So this would be like the third day. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, um, who confronts him? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So what do you want to do at this point? Look up in a Bible dictionary who these guys are. Yeah, who, who are these guys? What's the difference between these, these three groups? It's just the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So the chief priests would involve you know, the upper echelon of the priesthood, not just the high priests, but the upper echelon of the, of the priesthood. The scribes, these are those who are writing. And what I would do also is to look up those three groups to see where they show up previously in confrontations with Jesus. So there's these three groups, and they came to him, and they, they questioned him. Now, I'm not going to get into, at this point, the details of the question and answer, but they, it's very sophisticated how Jesus handles this. <clears throat> they ask him a question, by what authority are you doing these things, and Jesus doesn't tell them. He says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And so then he raises a question, very sophisticated, um, you, you answer this, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And so they have to go into a little huddle because they have to think about how are we going to answer this because if we, they say it's from heaven, then they're going to say, well, why don't you believe, why didn't you believe him about me? If it's from heaven, then I must be who I claim to be. And if we say it's from men, then they fear the people because the people believe John, who's popular, and they're going to revolt against the religious leaders. So he asked them a question that they don't want to answer. And so as a result, Jesus says, well, then if you don't want to give me an answer, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. So he doesn't answer that question. Then what happens in verse 1? 
Okay, then he, of course, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. Who's them? The disciples. Is it? Yes, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And he goes through and he gives a parable. A man planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for a wine vat. So he builds all of these things, and then at, at vintage time, he sends a servant to the vine dressers that he might get some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. They took, but they took the servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant, and they threw stones at him. And then again he sent another, and they killed him. Uh, therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, last saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So he took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? Uh, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Obviously, he, the the point of the of the parable is what? Okay, who's the owner? Of the, who's the owner of the vineyard? Who's the man who planted the vineyard? God the Father. That's God the Father. Okay, who are the vine dressers? Israel. Uh, the, the the spiritual leaders of Israel. The spiritual leaders of Israel, and they've been given that that uh, uh, delegated that responsibility. So, this, who who are the servants that are sent, who are beaten, stoned, killed? Prophets, prophets of the Old Testament. And so, at the end, he sends his son, which is obviously the Lord Jesus, and they kill him. And Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He's going to come and destroy the, there's going to be judgment on the vine dressers, which means God's going to judge the religious leaders for their uh, rejection of Jesus. And then he makes the application, uh, in the last part of 10 and 11, uh, from, uh, from the Old Testament. So, um, verse 12, they, and they, what's their, what's their response? They're angry. They sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken. So Jesus is just ratcheting up the confrontation and the opposition. Now, how many times would we be told, "No, you, sh- you just just calm things down. You know, you don't want to have a whole lot of opposition here." And he's telling the truth, and the truth divides. He's not doing it in a hostile, confrontational manager he, manage, management that's that's just throwing gas on the fire he is simply describing the, the the truth and the truth and they can't handle the truth so now we come to the next little episode then they who's they they sent to him they sent to him who's they probably the chief priests the scribes and the elders so they've been shot down, so they're going to send in the, the next team, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So what do you want to do with that? Yeah, find out who they are. It's an interesting connection of, of individuals here because the Herodians are the, the more the secular power, so they've got the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the conservative religious leaders, and the Herodians, and they, they want to trap 
uh, Jesus by his word. So when they had come, they said to him, that would be the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they call him teacher. We know that you're true and care about no, that, that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? So now they're coming up. They think they want to, they're going to try to come up with a question that's going to trap him so that he's going to answer in a way that will, um, uh, that will anger the multitude. Right? Because if he answers that, that, if he answers one way that, it, that, that, yeah, it's okay to pay taxes and he sounds like he's pro-taxation, that's going to anger all the people because they're overtaxed like we are. And, um, but if he says don't pay the taxes, then he's in opposition to Rome and that puts him in a position of treason. So they're trying to trap him that way. And so, again, Jesus is very sophisticated in the way that he handles this, and he says, bring me a denarius. And he says, whose image is on this? And they say, well, Caesar. So, well, give Caesar what's due to Caesar. So he, you know, he avoids the whole trap and doesn't get sucked into their agenda. There are a lot of things we can learn about this in terms of having dialogues with, with unbelievers, dialogues with anybody who's in opposition. And then we come to the next confrontation. What's the next confrontation? Sadducees. Sadducees. So we've seen different groups here that, that come before Jesus. We see the chief priests, elders, and the, um, and the um, scribes. Second, we see the Pharisees and Herodians. Third, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees come and they say, and Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection or an afterlife. That's why they're... Sad, you see. Yeah, so you'll <laughs> never forget that. Um, they say there's no resurrection. They come to him, and they pose a question. And see, they don't believe in the resurrection at all or any afterlife, and they say, okay, Moses said that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind then <clears throat> and has no children, that his brother should take that wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is a situation called leveret marriage, which is uh, outlined in the in the Mosaic Law. And they come come up with this extreme uh, hypothetical situation that there's seven brothers, and the first took a wife who died, and he left no offspring. And then the second brother comes along, and he dies, uh, nor did he leave any offspring. The third likewise. So the seven seven had her and left no offspring. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? See, that's a question they ask. The other question they ask is, this is suspicious. What poison is she using? <laughs> but she is, um, so they're asking this question, and Jesus, Jesus says, um, you know, avoids the whole trap, says he doesn't validate their, their assumption because it's, it's silly to begin with. Um, and he questions, he says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you? And see, now he goes to the real issue. The real issue is you don't believe in resurrection, but haven't you read Moses? Um, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Therefore, you're greatly mistaken. I mean, he just cuts the foundation of their theology out from under them. So with each group, he basically exposes uh, their fraudulent motivations and their their false theology. Then we have another scribe come. Then one of the scribes, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him. So we have one smart scribe here who thinks he's going to uh, ask a, a, a better question. And he says, which is the first commandment of all? And so he goes, he, he asks the question, and then there's an interesting interchange with this scribe. <clears throat> Jesus gives the answer that the, the first of the commandments is love the Lord your God <clears throat> with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says, well said, teacher, but you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he, to love him with all the heart, understanding, soul, etc., as more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so apparently this last scribe, it seems, is not antagonistic. And he, he seems uh, close to figuring things out. Then verse 35, then Jesus answered and said, uh, while he taught in the temple, how is it that this, now Jesus answers the question to addressing these religious leaders, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David said, by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes from Psalm 110, and the people hear him gladly at the end of verse 37. So the, the leadership's in opposition, but the people are listening to him. Um, then verse 38, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places of feasts, feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater con- congregation. Now, verse 41, he goes on, he sat opposite the treasury, saw the people put money in. So in Jesus' responses here, uh, he starts to, uh, exp- again, continues to expose their hypocrisy and to point out uh, the positive uh, in terms of how it should be, contrasting the uh, the desire for attention and power on the part of the scribes with the uh, with the woman who, in poverty and anonymity, uh, gives out of her out of her poverty. So, by looking at this. As, a, as an overall study, what we have to do is understand that each of these individual episodes fits within a broader context of the religious leaders all challenging Jesus in terms of, of his credentials and wanting to, uh, want, wanting to uh, find a basis for condemnation and how Jesus uh, continuously goes to the Scripture and addresses their their issues or avoids them in very sophisticated manners. So when you get when we get to the next section, we start talking about interpretation. This is one of the ways in which observation leads into interpretation. Is that once we observe this kind of pattern or structure, we have to ask the question: Well, what does that mean? 
Why has Mark arranged this material in this way? What is he trying to communicate by the arrangement of this material? And, you know, earlier when I asked the question about Passover and I was pointing out that that's, that's an interpretation that's, an, <coughs> that's going to the next level saying, what does this mean? But that flows out of going into the text and asking these various questions about um, when does it occur, who's involved, what do they believe, what is the progression of events that's going on here. And, you know, we, we can get into some of the specifics and details of these different things that are described, but if we don't see it in the framework of the pattern, then we miss what's really going on. Because the, the, so we have to constantly in the study of scripture go up and get that bird's eye view, understanding the overall structure and the flow of the, what the writer is saying, and then focusing down on, on the details. Anybody have any questions? this, all of this happened in, in one day so he confronted everybody in the temple on one day? Yeah, yeah. from verse 27 down um, all this happens in one day now the, how, would you t- how would you test that? well I, I was looking over at number 14 it says after two days and I only, he told us to look at the right. days, and then I saw day one, I saw day two. He was in the temple, he moved, he looked across from the temple, and then he went out of the temple to the Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives, which was across from it. And then it says, after these two days. So all this takes place in one day. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and then, then you would go on from this, and what happens after this in chapter 13 is he went out of the temple. The disciple says, well, what? take a look at the, the temple, and he points out that, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, a question that somebody asked me years ago, and um, and I didn't know the answer at the time, said, well, well, you have the, the Western Wall, otherwise known as the, the Wailing Wall, and you, and, and you look at the stones that are there, and there are still stones left on top of each other from the first century. Well, doesn't Jesus say that all the stones are going to be torn down, not one stone left on top of another? How can, how can that be? How do you answer that from the text? It's a metaphor. Yeah, that's the, the, what's left is the, the restraining wall of the foundation that was what Herod built, and what Jesus is talking about is the buildings, not the, the, the restraining wall. This was just a uh, the wall that was put up around the temple platform to hold all the dirt and everything there to support the weight of the temple up on the temple mount. It wasn't part of the temple uh, precinct at all. So, okay. Now we're going to shift gears to go into the next section, and that's going to be on interpretation. And I, I don't think I've put down in the uh, syllabus what we should do for um, for reading, but we've got about three weeks. So I want you to read through chapter twenty-seven. 
28, I structured this, and 29. <clears throat> 27, 28, and 29. Of, no, of Hendrick's book, Living by the Book. We're going to do 27, uh, we'll cover in December 27, 28, 29, the first, uh, the first time we meet, which is the 8th, then on the 15th, 30 through 32, and then on the, um, yeah, the 15th is 30 to 32, and then the 22nd we'll do 33 to 35, and then, um, we'll do the last three when the, the first Sunday in February. When I come back. And then we'll probably do the rest of it in three chapter sections, wrapping up about the, right at the end of right at the end of February. So that's the plan. Hmm? What day is after the eighth? The fifteenth. Okay, let me just just give it to you. I'll, I'll post this, but for for the eighth, twenty seven to twenty nine. For the 15th, 30 to 32. And for the 22nd, 33 to 35. And the, you know, to get the most out of this, since we're not going to be meeting for a couple of weeks, is to look at the comparable, uh, sections in the workbook. which starts in in chapter 45, why do we need interpretation? And you could just work through as many of these uh, chapters as you you want to. I would see, let's say, uh, we've got... Okay, in the workbook... Okay, it's roughly about the same number of chapters in the in the workbook as we have in the uh, in the textbook. So just do three workbook sections, just like we're, I was assigning three chapters for the next meeting. Just do the first three chapters of interpretation: forty-five, forty-six, and forty-seven. Uh, do forty-eight. I think that works right. For, do through forty-eight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, chapters twenty-seven to twenty-nine for the next time. And 45 to 48 in the workbook. And just do as much, I mean, these workbook exercises don't take a lot of time. Most of them are related to spending about 30 minutes uh, on each of these assignments. So especially with the next two weeks off, you can probably um, just take about 15 or 20 minutes each day and you can uh, work through and give, put even more time into it. That's a thing about Bible study is you can always get something out of it, and you can spend 15 minutes on it, or you can spend three or four hours on, on, on each assignment. Okay? And, there's, and where we're headed in the interpretation, which we won't get to till I get back from Kiev, Judy, is there's a section there on figuring out the figurative so that you can read ahead for coming attractions if you want. See what Hendrick says about figuring out the figurative. Okay? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study through these things and to reflect upon how to read your word, what to look for. Pray that you'll just open our eyes that we can see uh, what you have revealed to us in your word. Father, thank you for each one who's here, each one that's watching, 
and their desire to become better students of your word and to read it more intelligently, more knowledgeably, and learn how they can uh, push themselves to study the word uh, for themselves. Father, we just pray that over the next couple of weeks as we spend time with uh, family, spend time with friends and family over Thanksgiving, that uh, it'll be great opportunities for us to share some of the things we've learned and to uh, be a witness and testimony to our family members and friends. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.